Discussion over dinner. This is our home. I came to listen to you, to talk with you. Discussion over dinner is sponsored and underwritten by State Street Community Church and the Pack Center. Good evening to everyone watching online, streaming with us uh, on our Discussion Over Dinner Facebook page. We are glad to have you tonight at our February Discussion Over Dinner. Um, just to kind of, if you're new with us or you're streaming for the first time, to give you a kind of a breakdown of what's happening, every month we have a conversation here at State Street Community Church, um, and it's not a, necessarily a religious conversation, but it's a community conversation. We believe that um, better conversations need to happen so that we become better neighbors and we tackle a different topic each month and tonight's topic is going to be on the black experience in LaPorte County. Now we're going to be talking about things like race and obviously there, it's a topic that uh, many people get nervous about naturally because uh, we don't know how to talk about it well or we don't want to say uh, the wrong thing or we don't want to maybe perhaps offend. Um, and so this is a safe space for this conversation. Obviously, like every other month, you're going to be texting your um, texting your questions into our panel uh, phone number there um, that's on the screen or if you're watching, um, it'll be put up as well. Um, and you can text it in. Uh, I, we don't know who texts it. Obviously, it's anonymous. Um, and if it's a good question, I'll ask it. If it's not, we will ignore it. Um, <laughs> so I, I do want to say a couple things real quick before I introduce you to our panelists tonight. We have a, a wonderful panel that I'm so humbled and honored to have with us tonight. Um, Tonight's a, a night about race. It's Black History Month. It's a, it's a night about um, talking about the black experience in LaPorte County. Obviously, uh, I'm a 6'5 white guy. And so um, I don't know if you guys pick that up or not. So tonight, for me, I might be asking questions, but but I'm, I'm listening and learning because it's really important for me as a LaPorte County citizen as someone that wants to, to learn and love people um, in deeper and more profound ways, uh, to not talk, but to listen. And so um, I, I, I do want to say a couple of things. We, we want to make sure that we check all of our privilege at the door and that we are um, concerned with the other more than we're concerned about preserving our own status and things like that. And that we're going to be talking about experiences and just because you might not have experienced the same thing doesn't negate someone else's experience. Also, we want to not assume. Don't assume that you know. Don't assume somebody else's experience. Don't try to teach someone else's experience as if it was your own. Also, um, above all, uh, it's a value here at State Street. And now that you're here right now, you don't, you don't have to be a Christian, but you're a State Streeter now. Um, we, we need to respect and honor everyone. Uh, we need to respect and honor everyone and everyone's experience. Um, and uh, like I said, in the foundation in, in reclaiming the art of good neighboring starts with listening. And so 
I'm going to introduce our panel. You are welcome to start texting in questions if you have them, and we will um, get to them and, and uh, uh, talk a little bit about it with our three panelists. But before we do that, let me uh, introduce our panelists for you. She's currently the executive director of the LaPorte County Juvenile Services Center, serving in the position since January 1st, 2009. Prior to that, she served as assistant director, counseling supervisor, caseworker, and youth specialist worker, all within the Juvenile Services Center. She is a 1996 graduate of LaPorte High School, where she ranked number three in her class, number one in our hearts, number three in her class, <laughs> and was voted prom queen. Now you're just bragging. <laughs> the first African-American prom queen in LaPorte High School history. She holds a bachelor's degree, yes. She holds a bachelor's degree in psychology from Spelman College, a master's degree in social work from the University of Michigan. <laughs> this, is a, this is a Church of Notre Dame fan, so. And a Juris Doctorate degree from Loyola University Chicago School of Law. She has a certificate in child and family law and is licensed to practice law in the state of Indiana. She has served on several community boards, including Family Advocates Incorporated, the Membership Advisory Committee of the National Juvenile Justice Network, and the Indiana uh, Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative Steering Committee. She is an alumni fellow of the Youth Service or Youth Justice Leadership Institute of the National Juvenile Justice Network. That's a mouthful. And a, uh, and a founding member of the Children's Policy and Law Initiative of Indiana, a nonprofit dedicated to protecting the rights of children. She was recently accepted into the Reducing Ethnic and Racial Disparities in Juvenile Justice Certificate Program at Georgetown University. In 2008, she was appointed by the Indiana Speaker of the House of Representatives to serve on the Governor's Commission on uh, Disproportionately uh, disproportionality in youth services. In addition to her role at the Juvenile Justice Center and practicing law, she is also a part-time photographer, something that brings her great joy. Please welcome my dear friend, Erica Stallworth. Hi, Erica. Hey. <laughs> he was born and raised in LaPorte, Indiana, where he graduated from LaPorte High School. All right. He's a small business owner and industry leader and expert in advanced metering information technologies. He has over 29 years of uh, visionary leadership and hands-on experience in electric distribution systems, natural gas distribution systems, and coal-fired power plant efficiency engineering, and customer service technologies and operations. He's smart. <laughs> he managed many different types of workforces throughout his career, many of which the majority were always white. This experience has allowed him to view race issues from a different side than most. He has a Bachelor's of Science in Electrical Engineering Technology from Purdue University. <laughs> An Executive Master's of Business Administration from the University of Notre Dame! and a Master's of Science in Human Resources Management and Development from National Lewis University. Please welcome my good friend, Richard Pate. Hey, Richard, you're so distant over there. I'm glad you're here, buddy. <laughs> I'm glad I'm here, too. 
She joined NIPSCO's public affairs and communications team in 2011, where she was responsible for community outreach and government relations. She is now a project manager for, project manager for gas operations and is responsible for pipeline compliance programs. She's involved with several employee resource groups and is the 2018 chair of the Energetic Women's Conference in Orlando, Florida. This focuses on leadership development for women in engineering and operations at utility companies across the United States. She also launched her own consulting firm, I&D Squared Consulting, LLC, in 2017, focused on improving diversity and inclusion in the region. Her goal is to work with local nonprofits and businesses on improving relationships and services to diverse customers, attracting and retaining top talent, and building an inclusive leadership culture. She has a green belt and is currently working on gaining her black belt in Lean Six Sigma. Watch yourself. <laughs> She is also very active with several non-for-profit organizations, which is how we met through uh, her work with Leadership Laporte. Her passion is geared towards youth leadership and education. She is a sponsor of the Student United Way at uh, Michigan City High School. She is on the board of directors of the Unity Foundation of Laporte County, Laporte County Career and Tech Center Advisory Board, Laporte County United Way, Urban League of Northwest Indiana, and the Food Bank of Northern Indiana. She just completed her... Uh, uh, her term as the board chair for the Urban League in the United Way. Prior to her position with NIPSCO, she was always involved in the community. She's an, uh, she was an elected at-large member of the Michigan City County uh, Common Council for four years, beginning in 2008. She has served as a board member of Doombrook, CASA, Harmony House, Michigan City Economic Development Corporation, Michigan City Housing Authority, the HOPE Program, and the NAACP. She also served as a member of the Michigan City Area School Strategic Core Team. She has done volunteer work for the Boys and Girls Club and the Minority Health Coalition. I'm exhausted just reading this. <laughs> She's a member of several women's civic organizations that include the Drifters Incorporated, the Lynx Incorporated, and Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. She currently... Are you guys... Are you in the same sorority? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> woo, woo. No, no. Uh -uh. no? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Our first lesson of the night. <laughs> no. I'm going to do more listening. <laughs> she currently serves as president of the Greater uh, Michigan City Chapter of the Drifters and is parliamentarian of, for the National Board of Directors for Drifters. She has a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering from the FA, uh, is that Florida? Florida A&M. Florida A&M University, <laughs> Florida State University, yeah. College of Engineering. She also has a Master's of Public Affairs in Public, in public Administration from Indiana University. She resides in Michigan City with her family, who you brought your husband. Yep. Yeah. She has received several accolades and was selected as the Humanitarian of the Year in 2018 from the Michigan City Human Rights Commission. She was named the United Way Volunteer of the Year in 2017. Yeah. In 2014, she was named Influential Woman of Northwest Indiana's Up and Coming Business Women of the Year in the same year as if it wasn't enough. Got a little greedy. She won South Shore's <laughs> Leadership Leaders as Heroes Award. She also received the Lester Radke Community Service Award in 2013. She also received the Community Community Service Award from Leadership Laporte County in 2016. Please, everyone, welcome Thank Angie you. Nelson Deutsch. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't know you were going to read all. No, I, I, I want to read it all because it's all very important and I'm super <laughs> impressed. And um, 
it's an amazing legacy. I was uh, born and raised in Michigan City, though. But uh, Michigan I went City to High Elston, School. And okay. I went to All right. All right. We've got a lively group. Everyone's very passionate about <laughs> the things about themselves. Um, Elston Red Devils. All right. All right. Everyone, I need you to bring your microphones closer to you. Every episode, we have this problem, and we're going we're gonna to fix it tonight, okay? Jeez. All right. So um, let's talk about our stories, guys. Richard, where are you from? From LaPorte. Get you get, get, you got to get closer to the microphone, buddy. Get closer. Yeah, bring that microphone closer you to you. You can't hear me? Yeah, there we go. Our, our, our streamers, our online people have to hear you, too. So you got to speak loud enough for the back. Oh, I think you normally hear me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> But I was born and raised in LaPorte, Indiana. Um, most of my work career was done outside of LaPorte. I spent 19 years working for Nipsco, Nysource. Um, I worked for a company called Landis and Gear out of Lafayette, in Indiana. I was telling people that earlier. It used to be called Duncan Metering. Uh, Duncan produced the first electric meter for Thomas Edison. And uh, so this was an offshoot. They are the largest electric meter manufacturer in the world. And I was marketing manager for customer service there. Worked for AEP in South Bend, where I ran the line department, the distribution engineers. Distribution engineers are the people who put the poles up. And all those wires that run through our community, they're responsible for putting those up. And it was one of the busiest barns of the AEP system, which is the largest distribution system in the nation. <clears throat> And then I went to work for a company in Pittsburgh when a headhunter found me, a company called Census. Most of you don't know Census. Census is the largest water meter manufacturer in the world. And all the water meters that have just been replaced in Laporte are Census water meters. But I was there for the electric side. And with that, um, I was responsible for the electric meter production. I'm doing you my professional history. Yeah, you're good. I'm and... There's, I'll lead into some aspects no, of no, that. No, you go. You go, boy. <laughs> but there, um, we were producing two and a half million electric meters, smart meters, a year, of which I was working with the engineering, manufacturing, <clears throat> and we were producing 350,000 meters a month. That equated to roughly $500 million to $700 million being pulled into census's coffers, and we pushed them over to be a billion-dollar corporation. The interesting thing about being in census is I went to a little um, town there. Um, I can't even think of the name of it now. <clears throat> but when I walked in, there was about three, four hundred um, workers in that plant. There were three blacks. They were all working on the line. I walked in. I was the only management. And there was this look like, who is he? And where did he come from? <clears throat> By the time I left there, it was just another challenge to me. Um, they all knew me. They all liked me. And everybody wanted to talk to me. And they keep, people asked me, they said, how do you do that? And I said, well, I was born and raised in LaPorte, Indiana, white middle-class America, LaPorte, Indiana. I think more white than you do. <laughs> and I had my peers would ask me that. And I would, like I said, I've managed many different workforces, technical workforces, and majority of them were white males. And they would ask me again, how do you do that? I said, I was born in white middle-class America. I have the same values you do. It's just that I'm black. 
Mm. And that has what helped me throughout my life. And probably the thing that took, that uh, opens me up more with what we want to talk about tonight, because in those conversations, I would have a room of workers this size and I'm sitting up there and they've never had a black boss before. And we'd be talking and a lot of things would come up. And so a lot of the things that people are talking about today, we had to deal with. And usually when I left it and, and I could say, I'm like, Nate, you got to learn to listen. First thing my employees always ask me, what are you going to do? I said, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to listen to you. And then I'm going to ask questions before I come up with an answer. And I, they said, well, how do you know you succeed? I said, as long as you tell me, you will tell me and you will tell me if I was fair or not. And the majority of my workforce that I left have always said, we had to say you were honest and you were fair. Yeah, that's great. Um, but Richard, when you walk in there then, just by being black, you already have a hurdle in front of you with many of the people you were working with then. So you had to prove to them because of your race or because of their in implicit bias that you could understand them or what, 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 what was it you think? Or it just, they had no experience or? Uh, basically it was no experience. Now I'm in the utility industry and I was also a director, which means I manage managers and we'd go to conferences and they would say, well, you know, we'd meet up. We'd go to these national conferences. They said, well, we need to meet up. I said, how are we going to find you? I said, you find me. <laughs> and at the end of the conference, they would they'd come back. And they said, you know, you're right. <laughs> I said, duh. But, um, you know, it was interesting. It was always a new adventure as they walk in because mm -hmm. the obvious issue is I'm black and I'm big. <laughs> and so it was always a surprise for them. Um, when I went to work over at AAP, uh, the manager there didn't tell him that I was a black when I came in. So when he first came in, he just told him, says, he's different. <laughs> he's different. But at the end of it, it was a, a great opportunity because um, I'm, I was, I'm a change agent, which I mean, I like being out on the cutting edge. I like controversy and I go head to head with it because that's what I grew up with. Being born and raised here in LaPorte, Indiana, um, at the age of, in middle school, if my friend's parents were prejudiced, I could pick that up. And one of my friends was saying, you know, my dad was prejudiced. I said, I knew. <laughs> what? I picked that up immediately. And it's just like a sixth sense. So my wife, Chris over there, who's sitting out there. The wonderful, the <laughs> wonderful hiding. Chris Pate. Yeah. We were at LaPorte Heights. Now, how the prejudice and the issues in, in the community affect you? When our oldest was going to LaPorte High School, well, we knew the assistant principal. She lived around the corner from us. We were in her office, and we were talking and laughing with her, and she was yelling down the hall at the principal of LaPorte High School at that time, who long been gone, and he was laughing and joking, laughing and joking. And so she said, well, I'll take you down there to meet him. When we walked in the room, the atmosphere changed. And I knew right away what it was. <clears throat> On the way out, Chris looks over at me and says, you know that man's a racist? I said, you saw that? She says, yes, I did. Because she'd been around and she, she was exposed to it. It was very obvious that she knew it. So, you know, when you run into situations like that, there's like a sixth sense that goes up and you know what you have to do. So I don't crowd. I've learned over the years not to crowd them but I talk to them, but some people will change 
and want to change, and some people don't. Mm -hmm. And depending on who you are, where you are with that, it can be a quick or it can be a very long process. So, Thanks, Richard. Um, Erica, now I, I do want to say Erica provides a very important role in my life. Uh, we've been on a, a board together, and, and she was the board president of Family Advocates when I came on the board. Now I am the board president. Um, it's like a replacing the, the Lexus with a Meyer brand version of it. <laughs> um, but uh, Erica has a, an ability to, to give me a look or to tell me, you need to stop. Um, <laughs> just calm down. I think I got that a couple times. Calm down. Um, and I listen every time uh, because I respect Erica and I, and I just love her so much. Um, but um, Erica, you said you graduated from Laporte High School. Okay. Uh, what year? 1996. 1996. Prom queen. Um, Laporte has in the city of Laporte about 3% black residents. Okay. Um, as you probably know, and you're also in the justice system, and which has a lot of you know racial conversations happening right now. So, what's been your experience? You were voted prom queen, but did you did you feel a lot of you know essentially tension in that, or you know how was your experience in high school? Um, well, let me go back to elementary yeah, school. Go ahead. So, my experience growing up in Laporte County has actually it's not been really bad. I'm still here, clearly. <laughs> um, I grew up in a very small township called Kingsford Heights, Indiana. <laughs> I um, grew up in Kingsford Heights. I went to Kessley Middle School and Laporte High School. But as a, a young child, my mother, she explained to me that, you know, people will probably look at me differently. I'll probably be treated differently. But that doesn't mean that I am different mm. in a way that I'm not as smart as someone else. So I held on to that all my life, even when I went off to college and the different universities and things like that. But I can remember as a child, um, I was probably in kindergarten or first grade. I knew how to read before I went to King's, um, kindergarten. That doesn't shock me. Because <laughs> my older cousins, we were very, we're still close. They taught me how to read. Um, I can remember that I knew how to read. I was put into the lowest level reading group oh. in the very beginning of the school year. And I did not know why, because I knew how to read. Mm -hmm. um, but I ended up at the end of the year being in the highest level. So that was just like something small. And I don't know if my mother had a conversation with the teacher. I don't know. Did, but you, did you have a conversation? I don't know. You did. Good. <laughs> I don't know good what mom. happened behind the scenes, but I still remember that at age 41, that I was put in a lower level reading group. And I don't know why. Um, I remember being called the N-word on the elementary school playground. Um, I remember kids asking kind of ignorant questions about my hair, um, just, you know, out of some, mm -hmm. some innocence, some not, um, and just having to navigate those conversations. And then in high school, I remember, um, when we, the teachers, bless them, their hearts, wanted to teach about slavery. <laughs> <laughs> if there's anyone in the room that feels uncomfortable, you may excuse yourself. Who are you talking to? Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, things like that just made it very uncomfortable. But then on the other side, I had teachers who cut out articles about Spelman College and set it on my desk. You know, they talked to me about what I wanted to do. They encouraged me. So I didn't have a really I didn't have a really bad experience, um, but I had to learn how to navigate those kind of things. 
and I did I did well at Laporte. I did I've done well in Laporte County, um, but that hasn't been the case for everybody. Yeah. You know, I have privilege because I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, my male counterparts may not have had those experiences. Mm-hmm. I know they haven't had those same experiences. Um, just two days ago, I got a call from a really good friend of mine, and it's just ironic that we're having this panel today. She called me. I'm a, I'm an attorney. I don't do criminal law, but she called me and her son was actually in the back of a police car. He was coming home from the grocery store and it was in this county. I'm not going to say what what city he was coming home from the um, grocery store and unloading his car to take the groceries into the house where his girlfriend and his baby daughter were. And the police surrounded him and they put him in the back of the police car. They told him he looked suspicious and that they had heard that there were some gunshots being shot in the neighborhood. So he was somehow able to call his mother and his father. And they called me and I just gave them some some advice on what they needed to do. Um, He ended up going to the police station where he was interrogated and they explained to him that the reason that he was picked up and taken to the police station is that a neighbor called and said that his car matched the description of someone who was shooting. Now, I understand that the police have to do their job. Like, I work with law enforcement. I'm the director of Juvenile Detention Center. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I work with law enforcement. I'm very good friends with law enforcement. But as a black man, I can't really speak as a black man, but I can only imagine how that must affect your spirit. And that's just not a one-time thing. That's when you're out on the street, you know, and people cringe when they see you. I've had, you know, I have a brother. I've had boyfriends who I walk next to them. And women, white women will just cringe. And you can see the fear in their eyes. And then they look at me and they just relax. I've been in a car where I've been stopped as an adult six years ago in a city I'm not going to name. I was looking at Christmas decorations. Name and shame. Go ahead. I'm not. I was looking at, I told you I work with law enforcement. I know. (laughs) I was looking at Christmas decorations. It was in a ritzy neighborhood that I hadn't seen before. We were looking at Christmas lights. Following all the laws, we got stopped. We were told that we were stopped because we looked suspicious. Why do I look suspicious? It's Christmas time. We're looking at Christmas decorations. So me, I tried to let my then boyfriend handle the situation because I can, you know. So I just, but it was not going well. The officer was very aggressive. The way that he talked to him was very demeaning. How long have you lived here? Why are you over at this side of town? You know, what are you doing out this late? Minding our own business. So I said, may I speak? Because I wanted him to handle it. And so I spoke. And I said some things. His supervisor ended up coming. I ended up filing a complaint. And it was resolved as best as it could be. You know, but those are just some experiences that I've experienced. But, you know, as a, a black woman, like, I know that I have privilege that my male counterparts do not. It's it's. it's- Erica, I, n- I never even thought about this the, the, in this way of my privilege. You know, every year, right, we go look at Christmas lights that you have to be afraid that what if someone sees you and calls the cops just because of your skin color? That's never even crossed my mind, obviously, because I'm a white man that has mm-hmm. infinite amounts of privilege. And um, that, that had to have been a, a tremendous. Now, Richard, um, Erica, you guys both are in the Port School Systems, graduated, right? Did you have any black teachers? No. I had one and she was excellent. Mrs. Blakemore, she taught me how to swim. And she is excellent. So if I can go on a little bit, Please um, do. 
because of that experience, like just not seeing educators that look like me, I ended up going to HBCU, Spelman College. And for the first time in my life, I saw professors that looked like me. By the way, can you explain HBCU? Just historically again. black college and university. They were developed because um, back when um, slavery was abolished, African-Americans were not allowed to go to the same colleges as their white counterparts. So we developed our own institutions. And so they're historically black because they're open to all still. But the history that goes around with it is historically mm -hmm. black. Um, and so a lot of people in my family, we go to HBCUs. Um, and coming from LaPorte, it was just the greatest experience. It was just such a, a contrast. And just going there and being around, surrounded by people who actually look like me. Because I was number, out of um, 19, class of 1996, there were only nine of us out of 425 students. Yeah. So going to, leaving LaPorte, going to Atlanta, Georgia, for one, it was culture shock. Mm. But then just being on that campus and just being around professors who just, um, they taught me things that I, you know, was in LaPorte High School, I learned about slavery, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks. But then when I went to my HBCU, I learned about W.E.B. Du Bois. I learned about um, some African leaders. I just, I, my, the world just opened, mm -hmm. you know, and it was just, it made me just a more well-rounded person. That's great. But I had to leave LaPorte to get that. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, you know, when I went to school, there were no black teachers. <clears throat> and thinking about it, I've never had one. I have two master's degrees and an undergrad degree. I've never had a black professor, never had a black teacher. But fortunately, I had white teachers who cared about me. And I'm like you, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I had black privilege because I could talk <clears throat> and I could talk reasonably. Um, some of the teachers talking about elementary school when you bring that. I went to Washington Elementary School over here, which is closed. And um, we were the smallest elementary school in LaPorte County, in LaPorte school system. But in my fifth and sixth grade, we won basketball, football, ring toss. <laughs> <laughs> and we were a diverse group of, of, of people. But we were minorities, blacks particularly, few Hispanics, and, and a lot of poor whites. I had a male teacher there, a Mr. Ford. And I remember going to football games in elementary school. We're playing for the championship. And his wife is the only one sitting on our stand side because all our parents are working. They couldn't come to the schools. And the other parents over there cheering and, and nearing at us as kids because they didn't want us to win. <clears throat> Before he passed away, I got a chance to see him after I came home from the Navy. And I recognized my black privilege. And it was probably one of the best things I'd ever done as I went to him and I thanked him. That man cried. But that man and his wife had helped mold me through all the years of a young years of seeing um, and building who I was. Even though he was white, he treated us just like anyone else. We had a bus driver, a Mrs. Swanson. She picked up all the black kids. <laughs> and... And I come to find out that um, her husband was a racist. But every day we got on that bus, she smiled at all of us and said hello. I thanked her. I was able to thank her after coming back. And her son, who's a mechanic, was riding with me. And he was, I was telling him about my car. 
I didn't know it was her son. And he says, you Richard Pate? I say, yes, I am. He says, you know, Mrs. Swanson, the bus driver? I said, yeah. He said, that was my mom. He said, she liked you. (laughs) But, you know, she never, she always, all the black kids got on the bus. We all liked her because she treated us all the same. And she always smiled every time we got on the bus. She never gave us a hassle. Those are the kind of people who I remember. And as I tell people, that's the white America I remember. Hmm. Angie, uh, did you go to the Michigan City Schools or Little Park? Yeah, I, I grew up in, in Eastport in Michigan okay, City. Okay, Eastport, so, yeah. So, um, so uh, Michigan City, Laporte, very different, right? Yes. Uh, I don't know if you guys, if you, you know or not. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the statistics just so you have, according to the last uh, census. Obviously, uh, in 2020, this this will be updated. But in Laporte, the statistics are 88.6% white, 3% black. In Michigan City, it's 64, 64.9% white, 28.1% black. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a larger minority population, correct? Yes, yes. So... Um, elementary school for me was different. I went to Eastport, um, pretty diverse school, um, really didn't experience our teachers looked at all. We didn't really have color in elementary school. That didn't happen until junior high school where you start seeing the division and Mm -hmm. the the divide and you start grouping with your own people. And, and I say it that way because, um, Eastport was a special place and I still talk to my teachers. I've Stayed in touch with them through the years. I think you went to, did you go to Eastport? So, um, so Eastport, um, our teachers were our friends and they knew our parents um, and they looked at us more like their children. And, you know, as far as what we were, our abilities were, they didn't look at us differently. Um, my first experience with racism or a teacher treating me differently was at Krieger. Um, I uh, was the only black person in my math class and my English class at that time. And then um, maybe a month into school, they moved me into the advanced science class. And I had a teacher named Mr. Gallifero. I don't know if anybody knew Mr. Gallifero. He's passed on. Um, But when I was moved into that class, he actually had me come in front of the class and congratulated me on being the first black person in his advanced science class kind of paraded me and um you know my mom was like she didn't want to she was like this is an opportunity so for her she was like just get the grades you know you know don't cause any ruckus right so you know me I would have probably went in there and done something crazy but um so that was the first time I experienced that and it was like okay I'm just gonna let this go and Mr. Gallifero he was nice to me but just him putting me in front of the class like mm-hmm. that as a, you know, seventh grader. As an other. Right? Yes, as another um, was different. And so, you know, that was the first time I experienced something like that. And then as going through high school and I, you know, high school was good for me. I was an athlete. Um, you know, I did different things. So popular. I was a class officer. Um, so the only other situation that I really dealt with was with my counselors when I decided on where I wanted to go to school. I went to HBCU as well. So um, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to go there? That kind of thing. You know, why would you pick that school? I thought you were going to go to Purdue. You know, so those kind of things kind of swaying me away from that, um, 
from going there. So um, I, I went to FAMU. We call it FAMU. Um, I'm a rattler. And, um, but the school was with Florida State. So we had our own challenges, too, because now we have a black university, predominantly black, and then you have Florida State, and our School of Engineering was joint. And um, most of the companies at that time were looking for African-American engineers. They weren't looking, they were trying to develop programs where they actually hired more minorities. Mm. Um, so in that case, um, there was some friction between the students because companies were coming on FAMU's campus and not Florida State's campus. And they wanted the same privileges on our campus. And I said, well, most of us said, well, pay your tuition over here and you can get those privileges, right? But they didn't want to do that. So um, just different, um, but... You know, for me, I, diversity was always around. Um, I think in the workplace has been different. Okay. Um, I think as an engineer, first of all, there weren't that many female students um, and then being black. So the assumption is like, oh, we hired, you know, and you make you well, you stayed in the system in justice system working your way up. But, you know, as a black female, um, they said, oh, they needed to fill their quota. If I get hired somewhere, it's not because I'm qualified. It's because, well, she's black and she's female. That's a double whammy, right? Sure. And not because um, I'm good at what I do. So those are the kind of things I think that um, our experiences are probably, um, especially for a professional, yeah. you have to deal with. Um, same thing with my kids. Um, uh, I remember moving my, my kids into, I moved around a lot early on in, in my career, but then um, went to parochial school. And even with my daughter, um, she's in Houston now, and she, you know, just dealing with navigating her being the only black in certain classes or one of two, um, and then making assumptions, like you said, you know, she started reading before the rest of the kids also. But just those little assumptions that, um, you know, in the back of their mind, there's no way they could be that smart or, you know, because they're black, there's certain things that they're dealing with. And I think that's why conversations are, you know, need to be had. I, I like leadership Laporte County because we talk about it. Yeah, I don't know if that one class was super quiet. They didn't ask any questions, but, um, you know, when you don't have the discussion and you don't create a safe space for people to ask questions, um, I think that's when things fester. Um, you know, I tell, you know, my husband, Jeff, Jeff is, wave, wave your hand, Jeff. Go hey, ahead. Jeff. <laughs> so Jeff is the first white person I ever dated. Okay. It's going to say that. <laughs> and I married him. Right. So, um, but I remember him even saying to me, I thought you never dated a white guy. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, why would you say that? Because I'm a professional that. I wouldn't, you know, but it wasn't even about, um, you know, people say they don't see color and they say all those things. Well, we became friends first. So that's the main thing. And I don't think people realize that, um, you know, we're we're such a diverse area right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, every just America in general. And we become so polarized again. And I don't know how we got from becoming this melting pot to being so divisive again. It's just, it's just kind of weird because, you know, there's more, you know, there is more intermingling of all races than ever before, mm -hmm. but now we become more 
angry about it. And it's it's just I've never seen such a thing, you know, go on. So right. I want to uh, you you brought up two questions for me. We'll get to the first one here. Um, you, you, Angie, you talked about that otherness, right? Being mm-hmm. brought up into the front of the room and, you know, made to feel like an other, right. even though maybe it was well-intentioned or maybe it wasn't, you know. Um, but when was the last time in your adult life, you can either talk about the experience or just say when, as an adult, um, that you felt like an other because of your the color of your skin? We were at the movie theater, me and my husband. So... So he came in behind me. So, you know, you have that AMC Stubbs reward thing. And they had yep. a separate line for the people who were premier. So we're premier and I'm kind of just standing there, but they're taking other people from the other line. They're white. I'm black. I'm standing there. My husband walks in and I'm kind of now standing in between both. So he walks in, he gets in line. We're together. And she was like, um, oh, I have to take him because he's a premier member. <laughs> I'm like, I've been standing here all this time. And I was like, no, let's just get our tickets and go. And he's like, no, no, we're not letting this go. And I'm just like, I just want to go to the movies. <laughs> of course, he went and got the manager. We'll, we'll, we'll fight this fight right, another day. Right. Right? But he went and talked to the manager and, and he's like, I'm not letting it go. And I'm thinking, man, you know, and it was so obvious. And it was just like, okay, I've been standing here all this time. You've been I was here in the line. Then you start taking all the other folks and he walks up and now it's okay. So, um, so we've experienced things like that. Um, mostly when we've been together that I've noticed it. Um, not when it's, you know, at work, sometimes I'm the only black female in my organization now uh, on gas, on the gas side. So yeah. And a male dominated. yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's just some differences and then, Oh, I didn't know you were an engineer. Even Richard did that to me, though. <laughs> you were in customer service. And I said, customer service. You we're, did we're calling that people out today. <laughs> so, but they just make people assume yeah. that, oh, there's no way you're an engineer. Sure. And I'm thinking, okay. Oh, I am. I'm sorry. Sorry. Right. 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 <laughs> so. But I've hired black engineers for NYSource. Okay. I hit the quota. And I do want to say... <laughs> <laughs> Richard, the, the damage is done, Richard. Right, right. <laughs> but I want to say about Jeff, it's, that is a black man in a white body there. <laughs> uh, Erica. I, I'm trying to actually recall and just off, I can't think of anything right now, recent, that's, that I, mean, I can't that's, remember. That's great. So, yeah, or it could just be that I'm so used to it, I don't okay. even. Sure. I don't even acknowledge Kind of like it Angie anymore, was saying, so. you just kind of, we move on from these. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know? you're used to it, so you just, it is what it is. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> what about you, Richard? It was, I'm older than Angie and Erica, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so my family came up here and I was born in 1951. So you I said was, most recent. Most recent. <laughs> I said, you did. I said, 1951. I said, I'm older than you. Oh, okay. <laughs> He's giving his story. Yeah. I'm giving my story. He's building up the story. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> it happened in 1951. Yeah, 51. So, when I, my family, I was born in 1951. And so, every summer we would go back. My family was from Louisiana and the bayou of Louisiana. Both my uh, grandparents were sharecroppers. I still remember my grandfather coming in from the field because I was going to go with him one morning. I remember sitting on the on the porch of his shack and there he was coming down the field with his bib overalls on behind his two Arkansas mules. 
Okay, so <clears throat> that's where they live. I always told my kids, I said, my family lived in the house on Sounder. Not the color purple. Color purple was a nice house. <laughs> they lived in houses like Sounder. So we would go down every summer to visit them. And the first thing we would do is when we hit the Illinois line, you're crossing the Mason-Dixon line. So now you got to say, yes, sir, no, ma'am, and all this other stuff. I said, I ain't doing that. I was born and raised here. I was never allowed to go by myself anywhere in the South because of Emmett Till. Those who don't know Emmett Till in 1950, um, he was beaten. He was like 14. And his mother refused, and it was up in Chicago, and his mother refused to close the casket. She wanted the world to see what they had done to her son. So they were afraid that that would happen to me. <clears throat> and so every summer, for year after year, we would come across Mason-Dixon Line. I'd go back into to Louisiana and cross that. And I still remember the uh, water fountains, the bathrooms, colored whites. I remember my father on the side of the road because we could not find a bathroom for his mother. She had to go in the weeds and the bathroom and, I, and how he was, he was crying because he was upset that that had to happen to his mother. Um, so that's the kind of Jim Crow South. I actually saw Jim Crow live. Then when the civil rights came through, that was a big issue of talking about the civil rights movement. Well, I'm in high school, middle school and high school. So the discussions were out there. And we would have them all the time in classes and around my friends. And just like Erica, the N-word was used. And they would look at me and say, oh, but Richard, we don't mean you. I said, well, who, oh, yeah. who do you mean? My mother, my father, my uncle? Which one are you talking about? But, um, you know, some people would, that would bother them and other people it would seriously bother them. Some people, they, that was how they were born and raised. So it was um, an interesting time, but I knew at grade school that I was different because, like I said, we grew up, um, you don't become aware of, by middle school, it was definitely obvious that you were different. But we would do the dancing and different things, and these girls would run over to dance with me because I was different. And, and many times we'd go out and they would always say, well... We can go out and we would run around and acting, but they said, don't tell my dad. <laughs> they were very, they were very quiet about it, but they were, they were curious enough that they wanted to know and they wanted to see. And with that, over the years, I continued to do that. We, Chris and I, we were down in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And this one, my wife, we've been married, we've been together now 45 years. We... <laughs> She was 17 and the craziest white woman I, I came home looking for. <laughs> I came home from the Navy looking for an older black woman. Okay. So they went to Spelman College. I went to the USN, United States Navy, during the Vietnam War. And I was around uh, guys from um, Orlando or from uh, Oakland, from Cleveland, Philadelphia. And I became very radicalized because I was angry. Because I took a black history course and I saw all of these things that black people had done. I said, this was never in my history books. And I loved history. I said, why weren't they saying this? Why weren't they telling this? So I came home angry and I was looking for an older black woman. And this 17-year-old girl comes bouncing across there. <laughs> and, and there we were. 
Well, we were in, in Baton Rouge, and that was in, oh, probably, what was that, 80-something, because we had our three kids. So it was in the 80s. We went to a restaurant, and we sat there, and they served everybody. And I'm smoking. <laughs> I'm, I'm just smoking. And I'm telling Chris, we need to leave. And she says, nope, nope, I'm going to make them serve us. <laughs> and I looked over at my oldest daughter, and she was about seven years old at that time. And I saw she was fuming, too. That was the first time I realized she got it. Mm. And she was seven years old and she was mad because <laughs> she could obviously see they, they did not want to serve us. So when you when it's you, it's a little different story. But when it's your kids, it really hurts. That's true. Uh, we had I think my daughter, she's a senior in high school now, but in junior high school is when Selma, the movie came out. And I remember her coming home. And having this discussion about her friends and, you know, that's when she really started thinking about who her true friends were. And she talked about who would stand on the bridge with her. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things she said that um, in the conversation, um, you could tell that there was some uneasiness with some of the other students and that, um, well, I would I would be on the bridge. And, you know, so there was this back and forth. And one of the one of the students said to her, well, you you and Chase are different. And she said, so what's different about us? My GPA is higher than yours. What's different? You know, that kind of thing. And well, you're different. So, again, they were isolated. So if you're smart and you're black, you're different. Because you you don't fit the stereotype I have. Exactly. Of, yeah. of what exactly. the expectation is. So. Right. Um, you know, so getting through that with your kids and with your grandkids and making sure that they understand that we all have the same equal opportunity. Mm -hmm. Now we, we start, and I, we always say this, we have to be twice as good or 10 times better as a black person yeah. to even be seen or even get an opportunity. Um, I think that's true still. Um, again, it's more out of, okay, well that's Angie. Or because she was smart in school, she was the smart one. Um, and I, I think that's one of the things that, that scares me about educators and them understanding how they impact our kids. Um, and, you know, little simple things can, to, can make a kid feel like they're inferior. And, and I just think it's, you know, I think we need more training for our teachers who are dealing with our kids right. because that's the, that's the first thing. Don't, don't put my kid aside because you think they're smarter than everybody. And, and like, this is an anomaly, mm. you know, and I think it happens a lot. Oh, it does. And, and I could give you an example because Chris and I have been together for so long and our kids, Chris has shown up at meetings where our kids could have been pigeonholed. But she showed up and used her white privilege, and we talked about it. And she says, yep, I pulled my white privilege card. And because she showed up and she spoke to the teachers, and we'd go to teacher conferences, she'd show up and I'd show up with my suit because I wore a suit every day. And they would look at us like, where are they from? <laughs> right. But rather than being the norm, that was the exception. Yeah. And the t but the teachers have a tremendous impact on what our kids do. Yeah, and what we, they we've say. gotten a couple of questions, actually, uh, and we're going to get to some of your questions. But a couple of questions about that. Um, uh, here's one as a white teacher at a diverse local high school. How can I best support my students of color? And there's another one uh, as a teacher in a Laporte elementary school. How do you suggest discussing topics with 
heavy racial importance like slavery. Uh, what would you guys say to that? Oh. There you go. Yep. Okay. You go. Educate yourself first. Um, don't just, I mean, there's a lot of information out there. Yeah. So use it and find mm-hmm. it first. Don't just stick with kind of like the Martin Luther King, who's a great man, Rosa Parks. Just saying, but there's so much more to it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and yes, educate yourself first. Understand it. Martin Luther King was very radical. He was. People forget that. 70% of, of America did not like him when he was alive before he died because of what he was saying. He was radical. So... You can't be afraid of being radical. You have to deal with it head on. Educate yourself. And I mean, it's just a fact. It's just like putting a fact out there. It's just like Beckworth Pass. When they went into Oregon, through the Beckworth Pass into California, you realize that was a black man that discovered that? Nobody knows that. (laughs) And and also with the teachers, just... um, You know, we have our biases. and, And if you acknowledge that you have them... Um, when you're dealing with your kids and, and try not to, you know, I, I even think about hair. You know, my, my daughter wears an afro. I used to wear one. You know, just making do. comments, <laughs> comments about, um, you know, hair and things like that. Try to um, to be more mindful mm. of, of things that um, may be different. I know that even, you know, having older, being babysat by older Black people from the South, we had different dialect, right? And everybody doesn't talk slang and jive and all that. But I felt like sometimes teachers would try to blend in and it made it worse. You know, you try, you assume certain things about black people and you try to fit in with black people. That doesn't work. Mm -hmm. If you're authentic and you know that, hey, I don't know everything. I've never experienced or been around black people and acknowledge it and try to understand it. It'll go a long way. Our teachers at Eastport and I, I talked to Ms. Penfo, Ms. Bachman, all of my elementary school teachers still to this day because they treated us like family. It was not like I have black students and I have white students. Mm-hmm. They were the same all the time. And I, I think um, it's harder now for for teachers because they have so many other things they have to do you know they got all these you know tests and standardized tests so now they're trying to deal with the culture dealing with all the things they have to do but i think even taking some implicit bias you know classes or something would be helpful uh, thanks for bringing that up can anybody unpack you know briefly what implicit bias is anybody up here can ask chris she teaches (laughs) That's Chris. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what is implicit bias? So, so well, unconscious bias. So let's say, for instance, and I, I won't even use race. I'll use like the, somebody comes in with a bunch of tattoos, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's become more normalized than not. But before, when you see somebody come in with tattoos all tatted up, you might think they're a part of a gang, you know, something like that. Your mind already starts filling in blanks. It starts filling in blanks before even my, somebody speaks. So, mm-hmm. again, you know, me and um, Keisha, their daughter, were talking about this the other day. You know, living in places where, you know, there aren't that many black people and you get pulled over. Keisha said, if I get out the car and they see me get out the car, they're going to look at me like, oh, you know, she's six foot, you know. 
there's an assumption being made that we're aggressive. Black mm-hmm. women are aggressive. Um, and you got to you got to dial that back. If you see um, my brothers all have degrees, you know, but if you see my brother, you know, they're scruffy or whatever. They assume that maybe they've been to prison. I don't know why they hadn't even opened their mouth. And mm-hmm. so it's like you can use it with just about anything. Right. I mean, and it's a lot of the stereotypes that 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 cause that TV, right. music, you know, all those things. But implicit bias is that thing that you need to dial back before someone speaks. You see them and you just automatically assume certain things. Right. You make assumptions. And Angie called me out on it before. Like when she found out, I said, you're an engineer. Mm-hmm. So as I a was female, as a female, as a female, yeah. I, it was not that I was surprised she was an engineer. I was like, oh, you're an engineer. But it came out as an explicit bias. And she said, so. What? I know. <laughs> I, know. I, did. I was like, Man, and? <laughs> right. So um, it's those things. Um, we just tend to, it tends to happen to us more often. Right. So we all have implicit biases. You just got to recognize them. And then once you do it, you've got to say, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. That's, that's great. Um, here's a question. All of you seem to be very accomplished. You all hold advanced degrees. You have great careers. Do you feel that your accomplishments and higher socioeconomic status have impacted your experiences? Well, sure. Um, I'm able to have a privilege of my education. So if I'm in a situation, for instance, when we got stopped by the police, I kind of I knew what to do. I knew that I had rights and I could ask for a supervisor. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. Um, I know I know the law because I'm a lawyer. So the privilege of my education has um, is definitely something that I can use and have used. And living in different places. I, you know, I have a lot of friends who never left. Um, Same. You know, but even even growing up, um, we started going to church in Kingsford Heights. And I was like, oh, my God, there's black people. <laughs> I mean, no, seriously. Us. It was like... <laughs> A whole community. It's like we drove for two hours to get to Kingsford Heights. Not that long. On Sunday to go to church because my mom played the piano um, at the church. And and I used to go spend the weekends over there with the Bynums and stuff and spend the night. And this is like sixth grade. And it was like, oh, my God, there's black people in, in LaPorte. And right. that's that's how it was. It was yeah. like a neighborhood of black people right. that um, and it was it was crazy right. because you never... In Michigan yeah. City, you know, we, you know, we had diverse neighborhoods. So, right. um, you know, for, you know, education is probably one of the biggest things, whether you're going to the military or, you know, getting an advanced degree. Um, that changes the perspective for everybody. I'm the oldest of seven kids. So I was the first to go to school. And then after that, everybody started going to school. So, right. you know. All the girls have master's degrees. The boys went to school and got their degrees. One did 20 years in the military. And it's one of those things that um, once you set that precedent in your family, and that's, I think it just becomes that thing that becomes normal. So for my family, that's normal. My siblings, kids, this is normal. But that may, it's not the same for my, some of my first cousins. They mm-hmm. never left um, Michigan City. So they've been here for the whole entire life. They've never seen anything different. You know, so it's always interesting when I meet somebody who's never been to Chicago, you know, and (laughs) then you but then you realize how small our worlds are and how big education has made it for us. So I think that's the difference. Yeah. See, for my case, I definitely have black privilege. 
because I'm a black male with a lot of accomplishments. Now, most black males don't have that. Even in my family, I'm an anomaly. They don't know what the heck to do with me. You know, and I did not really learn how to fit in until I got in the military, where I was around more blacks than I'd ever been around. So when I came back, you know, I, I had objectives and goals, and I drove that. Actually, to be in Notre Dame, I was recruited into Notre Dame by Reverend Theodore Hesburgh on his scholarship. People don't know Reverend Hesburgh, but um, Reverend Hesburgh was on the first Civil Rights Commission appointed by Eisenhower. He's also one of the authors of Affirmative Action. He believed in affirmative action, and he would always ask Notre Dame for this executive MBA program. He would say, Arnie, where's the blacks? <laughs> There's no black people here. Where's the minorities? And so they would try to get people in there, but it's such a rigorous program that it was difficult to get because of my Purdue background. A friend, a, a white co-worker who had gone through the program came and told me about it because each class they sent out and told them, we are looking for minorities who can come into this program. If you know some, send them to us. So he recruited me. And when I was filing to get in there and put in the application, Notre Dame was very specific about telling me, saying, this is a tough program. We've had minorities in here who have not made it. We don't want to do anything that's going to hurt you. You know, you've got to do this. We can't do any more for you than we do for the others. So I had never been recruited in that way. They even brought my wife in for counseling. They counseled us together. And so not every minority has that. You see people, I tell them, I, I went to Notre Dame and the first thing they asked me said, you play football? <laughs> and I said, no, I got an academic scholarship. There's a deer in the headlight look. <laughs> what? It's hard for them to fathom that I got an academic scholarship in the Notre Dame. I should be the norm, not the exception to the rule. So, you know, we, we have these conversations regularly because uh, we get bogged down in a lot of like federal issues. And, and I don't know about you guys, but I sometimes I just don't know how to solve them and I don't know what to do. And so we like to have these conversations because we can talk locally and we can talk maybe about, you know, there's 110,000 people in our county and, you know, we can all learn to be better neighbors and impact the place that we live. I'd be, I'm interested to know for your guys' experience, how have things changed from when you were younger in LaPorte County to where you are now? Maybe something's better, maybe something's worse. Or would you just say in general, things are better? But typically these kind of questions are more nuanced than that, right? There, some things are better, some things are worse. Uh, what do you guys think about that? Well, I mean, I think it's, I, I can't say it's improved. We have a few more minority teachers now than we had before. But um, when I was in school, all, our, all of the black teachers that I had were health and PE primarily. <laughs> I'm trying to think if I had anybody. Nope, I don't think so. Um, but um, most of our our kids don't come back here that are black when they get their degrees. I mean, that's more of the norm because you're kind of, if you, you come back here, there aren't many opportunities. I moved back here, but I was living in Chicago when I first came back. So I left here um, and went to college in Florida. And then I moved to Texas and moved all around. And 
moved back because we the company I worked for, I worked for the phone company, we bought Ameritech. So they relocated me to Chicago and I had some rental property here. And when I took a buyout, I decided to to stay here. And and that was a choice I made, but um, I never thought I would come back. I said, when I left, I was like, I'm never coming back. I mean, I just didn't see an opportunity for me to be in Michigan City or LaPorte County um, as a black person. So, um, you know, my kids, I, I, I thought they, they had a good upbringing here. I mean, we've been here 15 years now. Um, but my daughter was like, no, I'm not coming back. <laughs> so she went to Purdue and got her degree. And then she went to Florida State and got her master's. And now she's in Texas. She has no desire to live here. She said, what would I come there for? I mean, there aren't any specific jobs I would want. Um, how am I going to meet young adults that have degree, you know, same kind of lifestyle that I, you know, mm-hmm. nightlife and all that. We just don't have that. So I don't know how we attract and retain young people. Sure. I think that's the main what thing. Are, what about you guys? Anything that you think that you can think of has changed or? Um, there's more black people on the port than there were when I was growing up here. Oh, yeah. I see people at the grocery store. I don't know who they are. <laughs> <laughs> that's we true. used to be able to know who they were. Right. I see people, yeah. I don't know who they are. So that's, that's, that's a nice know. feeling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause you knew all the families. I mean, we knew all the families, yeah. even in Michigan city, we knew all the families that were black in Laporte count in Laporte right. or Kingsford Heights. I mean, we knew the Dunlaps. We knew the, we knew everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's different, but, I guess. You know, it's good because it's becoming more diverse. And then the other thing is you see more um, minorities in positions of leadership. So right. in our local government, even, I'm, I mean, I'm the director of a, a county agency and my assistant director is also African-American. Um, I don't think growing up that was the case. Um, That's true. Michigan City, too, with the superintendent of right. schools. And so, yeah, that that has changed, but... I, it has changed from, from from when I was here, and it's grown. I do see change, and we decided we made a decision to raise our kids in Laporte, basically because it would give them a opportunity to deal with some of the things that we knew because it's still Indiana, but we felt it was safe. So, um, uh, I our kids don't want to live here either. They like Chicago. <laughs> They want to go. But youngest, she's, she's, she is a, a townie, and the kids call her a townie because she's strictly a Indiana girl. She goes mudding. She likes country music. She likes horses. And I keep saying, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> but what I have noticed in Laporte is the mix of grandkids. If you stop and look around, there are many mixed grandkids, and they're with grandmas. And that is different. And that's a change that's happening because you don't mess with a grandkid, not with a grandma around. You're in trouble. And I see white grandmas with mixed kids. And I'm seeing that more and more and more. So the money's already in the bank. The other thing you see the money's in the bank is there are two African-American women sitting here. More women are graduating from our higher institutions, whites and blacks, minorities, than there are black males or white males. The money's in the bank. They're going to be our future leaders. So you've got to get used to it now because it's changing and it's not going to go back. 
because they have all, they've got the education, the experience, and they're going to drive it forward. So it's going to be a change. Um, you know, the only constant is change. <laughs> how many of your have sons? Do you have a do you have a son? Stepson. Stepson. You have a son. Yes. Um, and brothers. I have four brothers. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, there, there's a, it's more of a statement, but I think there's an implicit question in this. As white parents, we never have to have the talk with oh, our teenage sons. Yeah. It's difficult to understand how many people cannot understand this concept. Um, I had a, a I have a dear friend in Chicago. Uh, she's a pastor uh, a, a, at an African American church. But uh, Gail Rice is her name, and uh, she had to send her son back down to college in the summer because um, she was afraid he he'd gotten pulled over and mm-hmm. there was some didn't do anything. But um, she said, "You got to get out of here." Um, there is a what is that like? You have to have the talk. I'm, you know, I'm 10 years, 15 years older than my brother. So he is like a son. And, you know, you have to talk to them about their dress. We shouldn't have to do this. But, you know, I have a brother that's in law enforcement. And I, there's not, there are still pockets of areas, even in Florida and the South, that he, even as a law enforcement officer, he was off duty. But he was pulled over and treated some kind of way, even as mm-hmm. a member of the Shield. Yep. You know, it was a some backwoods town, and they said they didn't, they didn't care where where the hell he came from, right? Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. sorry. No, that's, <laughs> hell's in the Bible. That's what, <laughs> but that's what they said so, to him. So, so his ass that's in the Bible too. So you can say that one. <laughs> so, but that's what. Another Moses. law enforcement officer said to him in worse terms than that. And so I tell my brothers, you know, and I've always told them that, you know, they can't they have to always be presented in a certain way. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't be wearing clothes that are, you know, sagging, baggy. And even if they're not. But then if they're dressed appropriately, they're still it can still happen. Well, right. who, where are you? Where are you from and why are you here? And. You know, all that questioning. But I just tell them, you know, just be respectful. I mean, that's all you can do is be respectful no matter, you know, what the aggression is. Um, But I thought it was remarkable that my brother was a law enforcement, you know, sheriff's deputy. And he was in two counties over and he was treated some kind of way. So, Uh, Richard, uh, did you have have did you have to have the talk with RJ? Oh, of course. I mean, we would talk about it and. um there's the one thing in our family, we've always talked about race. I mean, we walk in our house and it's there. <laughs> so we always had to deal with it. But um, RJ grew up here, but he was a preppy. <laughs> so unlike, I worry more about Keisha <laughs> than I did RJ. Because <laughs> Keisha would, it was more of an actor. She would definitely not, you know, she would just tell you whatever. But RJ <laughs> was smart enough and... and he always made a comment. He says, you know, Dad, when you'd had those talks to Keisha, I was listening. And um, so he always carried himself. He did run into a situation in Chicago when he was going to St. Xavier one night, and he was out with some friends. And I believe the girl was white in the car, and there was two other black dudes in there with him. And they stopped the car. They were going to impound his car, and he called home to Mom. And he was, in, he was beside himself. 
because of how they had treated him. So that was the first time he'd really been treated that way. But he realized what situation he was in and how he had to respond because of the conversations we'd had. So he knew not to go do anything crazy, but to talk his way out and uh, to deal with what he had to deal with and to move forward. But yes, we talked to him about that. And my cousins and, and uh, Wayne paid is my cousin. And, you know, we both grew up here and there was times we knew about those kinds of things and you had to have the talk. Um, Charles Biggers was my neighbor. Most people might know him. He graduated in 1964, 65. He was one of the first black athletes to play on the board high school that actually started. And my sister told me once that they went after practice, after a game, they went to Charlie's to get a pizza and the coach told him and that was that was Klimzak said you can't come in here at this point I'm sorry so he had to walk home <laughs> and that was in the mid 60s so you know but and his mother I, I remember Mrs. Biggers my neighbor she was beside herself because this was her kids but we all had that conversation we all knew what you could do what you could not do my parents had the conversation with me Here's what you can do. You need to watch out. And they worried about me all the time that I was out. So, I mean, it, just being a male, you had to be careful. Um, I, I do appreciate this question because it, it's an honest question. So, um, but, uh, and, and maybe, maybe you guys can appreciate it too, but um, what, do you, what, do you, what do you prefer to be called, black or African-American? It doesn't matter to me. Long as it's not colored, we had that conversation. <laughs> I mean, it happened. In, Somebody it, was calling you. No, no, we were in a class. We were in leadership report class. I was, Somebody in leadership report call you colored. They they used the term colored, and and I said, and and it was so, out of love because I knew the person, yeah. <laughs> and I and I said, don't 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 fret, it's okay, but don't use that because. Especially in our, my generation, colored is during the civil rights movement when right. bad things were happening. So all we know from history is that the colored, you know, they had colored for the bathrooms and the drinking fountains and all that. So right. don't use that. And and I don't think people realize that because nobody's ever asked. And I was like, you know, and it was just conversation. I was like, um. Let me go back to something. Don't use that. Don't use that. Don't say that. That's not that's not a term of endearment. I mean, I understand if your parents said that, but don't there's, use there's that. There's a history with that word. Yes. Right? Yes. So, yes. But black African-American doesn't matter to me. So it doesn't really matter to me. I, I prefer black. Simple. I'm black. Mm -hmm. um, but African-American is fine, too. Yeah. I'll answer to either of them. Just don't call me late for dinner. <laughs> so silly. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's why we have Richard on. <laughs> um, there's there's a question about this because again, uh, majority of Laporte is white. Many of the people in this uh, room are white. Obviously, it's a kind of a conversation. It is happening on a, a federal level, but we we I think appreciate uh, what. Uh, the conversation on blackface right now. Oh, goodness. Don't do it. Don't, well, don't do it. <laughs> you know, I mean, point blank. F don't do it. Right. Mark it off your list. Well. What, but but what, what does that make you feel, though? You know, 
So last night we so every Thursday we've been having Black Cinema Night in Michigan City um, during this month. So last night it was the Black Klansman was played and Selma was last week, I think. And one of the things came up because um, the term Piccaninny uh, came up um, um, yesterday. And me and my niece had a conversation about that word because I hadn't heard that word in forever. Mm. Um, but we were talking about how fashion now, you see all the issues that are happening with a lot, a lot of the designers are using exaggerated um, um, blackface kind of looking you know, purses and a noose around the neck, um, shoes. shoes and so different like a things. Turtleneck, right, or right. Yeah. So, so th- that's not happening for that's happening for a reason, because I think that we have gotten so far removed from what happened in the '60s and the '50s and in the civil rights movement that our kids have zero clue. So now you have a new breed or a new generation of of designers and young people that are clueless about what happened and what those things represent. Um, so now we're coming full circle because I hadn't heard that term in forever. And it came up in the movie um, in Black Klansmen. And we talked about um, that. So blackface, I mean, I don't know anybody who looks like that, number one. <laughs> it's, so, it's so exaggerated. And yeah. it was done um, on purpose because they said, you know, we talk about slaves and I'm like, okay, we slavery, you brought, you brought black people here to work, but then soon as, who said that today? Someone said, but as soon as you start paying them, they were lazy. <laughs> Someone said that. And I was mm-hmm. thinking to myself, mm-hmm. you know, wow, that's an interesting comment. Mm-hmm. I don't know who I was talking to, but that, that came up. Somebody and I was said like, that to you? Some, we were talking about, we were having a conversation and we are talking about slavery, how, you know, the conversation is, you know, slaves were brought here and they were here, they can work, they were hard workers, they did all this work in the field. Soon as, they, soon as it was abolished, all of a sudden black people were lazy, even though, because you had to pay them now, right? And, and that was a deep conversation. And I was thinking to myself, man, that, you know what, that's exactly how they, how it was flipped. And so mm-hmm. then as they start doing this, you know, putting all this, um, uh, news out and that's when the blackface came, you know, and they start exaggerating all the features. I don't know anybody who looks like that or talks like that. And, um, but that's the way it was. It, it's, I think it was probably in the movie last night. I think that's how it came up mm-hmm. last night because Tightly after, moving. After each movie, we have a conversation, um, and there were a lot of adults and a lot of gener- It was like four different generations of people in the audience, so um, the conversation got a little deep on that whole blackface thing yesterday. And I was like, "Oh, but our kids didn't know anything about it. My kids didn't know anything that, about that's it." A, that's a great because we we've had this question a couple of times. Are we teaching Black History Month and the Black Experience well enough right now? No. 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 I'm not sure what history, you know, what they teach in history books now, but I didn't learn about most things black history until I went to college. Mm -hmm. So I took a black history class at a black school. So we learned about things that were meaningful and enriching because all my professors were black, had PhDs, Mm -hmm. you know, so the experience was different. I got, you know, my, my calculus professor, 
is a PhD in math and our president of the college is a PhD in chemistry. Mm -hmm. So, and they're black. So, you know, different perspective. Right. Different perspective. I learned about black, like you said, in the Navy. I took a black history course through the um, advanced education. And I got a, a history book about that thick. I still have it somewhere in all my stuff packed away. But it went from from beginning all the way through. And there were so many things in there because I loved history in high school. I took history. I was I was a good student. That was one of my better courses. But I read that book. And that made me mad because I said, here's all these things that someone could have said easily. These were black people that did that. <clears throat> these were black people were here. But that was never thing. We had one chapter in our history book that said they were slaves. That was it. <laughs> so the, the black experience in the black historical movement is really just kind of pushed to other things. Right. Yeah. Right. I go on Ancestry.com. And I have found my great-great-grandfather. I can trace him back to 1840. He is listed on a 1850, 58 document of the slave owner as one of the slaves. They had like 90. And he was Edmund. His name was Edmund Pate. And he was 27. And he was worth $1,200. That's on the document. I went back and looked through newspapers and found out after the Civil War, they were uh, New Orleans area was um, freed in, in 1863 when the Union Army came down and, and freed Baton Rouge and uh, New Orleans. Um, he is listed in the paper of St. Francisville, Louisiana, as he is a vote, voting rights commissioner in uh, 1876 and 1879. But then he doesn't list it after that. That's when the white liners came in and they took over. The white liners were the precursor to the Ku Klux Klan. And they came into his county and killed 47 blacks at that point. And I'm sure they were after him. But my family's always told me that the Pate side of family was pretty nuts. <laughs> and we stood our ground. And he survived because he lived until the 20s. But I don't have any other history of him. And his, uh, his grandson, my grandfather, was one of the first black troops to fight overseas in the Battle of the Ardon Forest. And he went back as a sharecropper. So that's the kind of history that I have to dig up to find for myself. Most blacks, they go look back. They, they're fortunate to get back that far, if any, because there's no history of them. They were property. So you really have to dig to find out anything about black history. But... You know, you look at the 60s, the 20s, the 30s, there were a lot of things that African-Americans had done even prior to it that we know, but it's not being taught. Yeah. Hey, um, I appreciate Richard, that you brought the story of Emmett Till. I honestly hadn't heard that story until I was an adult. You know, I didn't learn that story. And um, it kind of took me on a journey through. Uh, I've been very fascinated with trying to learn more about the uh, black pastoral movement in the South that helped with the uh, civil rights and voting rights specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it's stories that need to be told. Um, yeah. Quite frankly, too, as an American, I, I need to hear these stories, too. Right. You know, not, you know, we all need to hear these stories. They're, right. they're so important. And one of the things that I want to say on that is what's helped me through my life to realize that 
is in a lot of those pictures where you see those people during the civil rights movement, you'll see black people, you also see white people in there. That's mm -hmm. correct. And I know Reverend Hesburg, Martin Luther King asked him to go over to Chicago when he was doing that. He said he'd never been in a situation, he said it was the first time he was ever scared for his life. But yet there were still whites who were there standing beside. When we were in Pennsylvania and the abolitionist movement, here were people running the Underground Railroad in the 80s, risking all. They would have lost all. They would have gone to jail to free slaves out of the South. They were white. Look at Charlottesville. I mean, if you look at the pictures from Charlottesville, the majority of the people there were white. Yeah, and marching. That, right, and that, and that's the thing. And I think people don't realize this is a human issue, not just a, mm -hmm. a race issue. And, and for anything to get done, it has to be everybody. That's right. Having, you know, being a part of it. So and it makes you thankful to realize that the other people are standing there with you. Yeah. And, and there was a question given essentially about it, it, is it good or should we be known by our race or um, essentially? Is it better just to say we're one human race? How, how do you celebrate your um, ethnicity? Well, you know, also, uh, you know, um, we were having a conversation. This was a, it was po political, but um, when people say they don't see race or don't <laughs> see color, that's a problem. I mean, you have to see me when I walk in and respect exactly. the fact that I'm black. Mm -hmm. I mean, exactly. I don't see how you get around me not being black because um, if if when people say that, I think it's more out of a protector protecting themselves. I don't see color. I mean, <laughs> exactly. you can't help but see color. Right. And, when and, I, no. and and you have to deal with it. Right. And I think we respect one another, you know, because I, I have different experiences than someone who's white. I yeah, mean, right. verse, and vice versa, but that's when you learn about things. Right. I mean, I remember the first time I spent the night at someone's home who was a different race. I mean, it's one of those things. And I think it's funny when you're a kid because you don't, you don't really care. Mm -hmm. But then you start, <laughs> the, it's laughter because you're thinking, assuming things. And I'm going to give you one good example that floored me. So I had, um, well, I raised some kids from other countries. They stayed with me through high school. One is definitely my son. He says he says he's Blasian because <laughs> he's black and he's from South Korea. Um, and he's funny. He's hilarious. But. You know, I remember the first time we were at home and he lived with us. This is probably the second year he lived with us. And he was like, the bottom of your feet are white. And I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, but think about it. He's from another country. He's been staying with us for two years. He's like, our, he's the brother for my daughters. He's my kid. You know, I take care of him. And he just couldn't believe it. And I was thinking, what in the world is he looking at? I mean, what what made him think it was just those little things, even with countries, other sure. people from other countries assume things about black people right. because they only see certain things or only hear certain things. But I just was like, huh? He said, the bottom of your feet are white. And I just was like, are you are you joking? Are you for real? <laughs> is this a serious? Right. And he was really like dumbfounded yeah and i was just thinking to myself wow this is this is different yeah. you know so i mean so we have a lot of different you know we've my house has been the united nations so 
Mm-hmm. Um, South Korean, Vietnamese, those two live with us for a couple of years. So, um, yeah, Macedonian, <laughs> six foot six or something mm-hmm. that live with us. So we we're a cross-cultural family, but just the little things that we've learned from one another was so, different. So instead of pretending like we're colorblind, which again, implicit bias means just they're there, right? Yes. Um, learn to celebrate, right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, learn to celebrate our differences yeah. and learn. Yep. When I, I walk into anywhere, you know, it's in my early career, I walked in, the first thing I just, where am I? And who are these people? Like I told you, I went to work in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. And there were three blacks with 500 people in the plant. Well, you first thing I'm noticing that, bing. Right. <laughs> you know, your brain is picking up your eyes long before you actually think. So to say you don't see it, I'm sorry. It's, it's a reality. And, but you celebrate it. One of the first questions I always ask people, and I'm not shy, I'll ask you, what are you? <laughs> Where are you from? <laughs> and it, it, it yes, shocks not them. Not me. Yeah, what are you? Yeah, I'm saying, where are you from? <laughs> what but, are you? Yeah, what are you? <laughs> I was at a de- I was down in Indy uh, a couple of days ago, and the, the dental professor, she was walking around, and I said, where are you from? Because it's international down there now. And she was saying, well, I'm Persian. Okay, well, that's a flag anyway. So tell me, but I had to ask her some more questions. Well, she was Iranian. And she didn't want to say she was Iranian, but she said she was Persian. Mm. But I talked to her and we started talking. And after that, she started talking more because you go right at it. I don't hide from what you are, but I celebrate who you are. And I start talking about the food and the great food mm-hmm. that they have mm-hmm. and the different things. And she was very open to that. And But that's, you got to talk to people and you, you can't, cannot hide of who they are. Yeah. Um, and I, okay. I just want to say quickly, I think when you celebrate and recognize your differences, it helps you understand better. Right. So, cause my experience, Summer there, wave, I've known Summer since the second grade. She's one of my close friends. And, but you know, we have very different experiences, but she's one person that, um, she's white and I'm black, but, and we have different experiences, but we can talk about it mm-hmm. and it, with everything that's going on, with the world mm-hmm. right now. Um, sometimes we have differences of opinion, but she and I are able to talk about my experience and her experience, her perspective, my perspective. And that just creates a, a, an environment where we can learn from each other and right. heal. And I think that's the problem. If you ignore the, your differences, you're ignoring, you're putting a bandaid on it. That yeah. doesn't solve anything. Yeah. You that's have true. to talk about it. You right. have to talk about race. You have to talk about experiences. Right. Diversity is our strength. Um, I, I want to talk, uh, uh, and we've just got like just a couple more minutes and we're done. Um, but <laughs> I love this question. So I got to ask it. Um, what is, uh, and each of you can say, what's one thing that you think well-intentioned white people should stop doing when they talk about or, or deal with race? <laughs> think That's about a good that. question. <laughs> She's looking at I, look, I was looking at my mother cause she said something. <laughs> Wait, 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 you got, you want to answer this? You come up here. You come up here. Be careful. Don't, don't, don't give her the microphone. Is there anything, you know, people say that are well-intentioned, um, but probably not helpful. 
trying to think. I'm trying to think. And there are things. Yeah. <laughs> I know yeah. I know my daughter right now, people want to touch her hair and she hates that. That's a good one. And I'm just thinking, okay. Is that your real is that your real hair or how? What <laughs> I, I I don't understand. what? <laughs> yeah, they yeah. try to touch her hair. She hates that. Um and I re- I mean, I can't think of anything specific. I know there are things, but Something that's kind of annoying is just the, uh, Angie, you mentioned it earlier, just kind of like using the slang and the vernacular, mm-hmm. trying to, you go boy. Mm-hmm. Somebody said that earlier mm-hmm. on the panel. Angie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I told her. I said, Angie, don't you do it. Don't no, you do it, Angie. But yeah, I think yeah. that's probably, yeah, just making some assumptions that you've had different experiences or you know, that everybody's from the ghetto who's black or something. You know, yeah. just things like that, but the hair thing is probably one of the biggest things, right. especially when I used to have an afro. And I'm, I remember going through the airport and then them putting oh, their hands in my hair. Right. And I was thinking to myself, are you kidding me that you, you're sticking your hands in my hair like <laughs> With that? With a dirty glove. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, they stopped that because it, no, it made the news. It. They well, still no, do it. Well, it made the news, too, though. They still do it. Yeah, well, that was <laughs> that was one of the things I think that bothered me probably I used to most. have a big fro, too, and, and people used to always touch that when I was in high school. I don't see that as much. And then the other issue of um, the language, I was on the NYSOR Speakers Bureau. So I would go before classes, uh, groups like this, and talk the NYSOR story. So one day I went into my daughter's class. <clears throat> she asked me to come over middle school, Boston. And I'm in there and I'm front talking in my suit. And one of the little guys in the class leans over to her next to her. She says, your dad is the whitest black man I've ever seen. <laughs> and she said, what are you saying? He don't cause you don't say get up and talk like this. She says, what's wrong with that? He says, but yeah, he's the whitest black man I've ever seen. <laughs> now, that's one thing I don't care for that. Black people articulate, mm. you know, that comment. Mm. So mm-hmm. they assume, oh, it's, oh he's very articul- articulate mm-hmm. or she's articulate. And it's like, well, what do you mean by that? Yeah. I mean, I graduated from the same school you did. I yeah. mean, what <laughs> what does that mean? But mm-hmm. you tend to do that. I mean, I think about when Barack Obama was being, you know, going mm-hmm. through his process and he's a very articulate African-American man. And, yes. and I'm like, okay. yeah, I've never heard a white person being called like articulate usually. I mean, right. it's not like the first thing that usually comes to mind. Right. Yeah. So that's the first thing when you see someone who's educated and who's black, they're articulate or, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of things. That's so. very appreciated in this, in this environment today. Yeah. That's <laughs> it. All right. So... <laughs> That's true. We end uh, with this question with every panel, okay? And um, and and it's just a question that uh, we give to every panelist. Same question: uh, What brings you hope, Richard? What brings you hope? Millennials. I was telling people earlier that millennials are looking at the environment we live in, and they're pissed, and that's, they want. That's to not ch- in the Bible, by the way. There <laughs> yeah, it is, because they peed against the wall. <laughs> But they are not only mad, but they are taking action. I say they are the boomers of the 60s. They give me hope because that's when I grew up, and that's when I had a lot of hope, but a lot of my boomers have become like our parents, Mm -hmm. and that bothers me. But I see these millennials, they're out there, and they're ticked, 
and they're taking action. The 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 kids from the Florida shooting. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are high school kids, and they're not taking no. They want to see a change, and they're going after it. So I'm very hopeful that they will do what we didn't. They'll take it to the next level. Erica, what brings you um, hope? Um, family. Um, and then, I mean, that's my generic answer, family. Yeah, it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> um, but just doing things like this. Innovative, it's something that's new. Um, and then look how many people are here. Right. You know, I think, you know, things like these town hall type things, mm-hmm. I think that brings me hope that there are people out there who are willing to listen and engage. Yeah. Kind of, they both kind of took what I would have said, yeah, but the, yeah, I agree. The, that worst part of going last. Right, right. <laughs> but I, I, I agree. I think my kids, I mean, I think just seeing the diversity in families, um, I think all, most families are now all diverse. There's an extension of, of some other other that used mm-hmm. to be the other that now has become the norm. Um, you know, so I think um, I think people are just more open. And I think our kids are going to be those those people, you know, that, you know, they don't you know, we don't see color. We talked about that, but they really have the most diverse group of friends now. I mean, it's not as segregated as it used to be. You like I said, you get to a certain age and all of a sudden you become a part of your own clique of friends. And I see that it's more open now. Right. Well, uh, will you please give a round of applause for our panel? And applaud you. I, um, I do, I do want to say again, um, the, the goals of these conversations aren't, aren't to, to, to teach or anything. It's, it, I mean, we all learn, but it's to listen to each other's experiences and opinions and we glean from it what we can and uh, we listen and we learn and we, we open our hearts and our minds uh, to our neighbors. And even if you don't live next door to them, we're all, we're all neighbors here. We all live in the same community. We all care about the same things uh, to, to the future of our community. And so um, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you, sh- if you streamed with us, I'm glad you streamed with us. Um, and maybe you're just watching the podcast afterwards. I'm glad you did that. And if you want to do anything for us, uh, if you want to help us out at all, just um, be good to each other and love each other well and uh, listen and learn and uh, see how you can um, help another person throughout their life in, in whatever way you can. And that's the, the best help you can give uh, to, to us. So thank you so much for being here. Next month, we'll have another discussion over dinner. If you haven't liked us on Facebook, um, go to discussion over dinner. Uh, on Facebook or go to discussionoverdinner.com and subscribe. You can go to um, any of our, our uh, podcast uh, sites and get that. I want to thank you uh, to our team that cooked dinner tonight, Joel Crane and Jeff Meinhardt. Yep. Uh, thank you to Pastor Becky Crane. She handled all of this, uh, getting everything ready. Uh, Gwen Hollinger helped uh, get everything set up. Uh, we have a team. Uh, Kelly Tanger did a lot of the content development. Thank you so much for everyone that does uh, so much to keep this going. Uh, We have a blast doing these. I hope you come back next month in March to our next one. So thanks so much. Have a good night.